Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney risking it all to challenge her party to stop with the lying. The lead starts right now. She's tweeting the truth about the big lie as the war within the GOP escalates. How will the party of Trump and his sycophants respond? Hospital hell. The COVID crisis in India is so bad that sick people are now begging to escape hospitals. And reunited, finally, the Biden administration making a handful of migrant families whole again after hundreds were torn apart at the border. Hundreds, hundreds more waiting. I'll ask the secretary of the Department of Homeland Security how much longer this painful process could take. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we begin with the politics lead, the rift between Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney of Wyoming, who insists on telling the truth about the election and the January 6th insurrection, and the Republican Party leaders and officials who insist on lying about those issues to the American people, that rift is hitting a boiling point today, taking direct aim at yet another false claim from President Trump about the election. Congresswoman Cheney tweeted, quote, the 2020 presidential election was not stolen. Anyone who claims it was is spreading the big lie, turning their back on the rule of law and poisoning our democratic system, unquote. Cheney had already upset Republican Party leaders for criticizing Trump's months of lying about the election, for voting to hold him accountable for the insurrection incited by those lies, and for refusing to back down despite criticism. Now the Wyoming Republican is facing renewed pressure from Trump loyalists within the Republican caucus to remove her from her House leadership position. She's especially facing pressure from GOP leader Kevin McCarthy and Whip Steve Scalise who continue to lie to the American people about the election and the insurrection, as CNN's Ryan Nobles reports. Tensions in the Republican Party appear to be at a breaking point. The future of the GOP unclear as two factions battle over the party's past, and more specifically, one question. Do you buy into former President Donald Trump's false assertion that the 2020 presidential election was rigged? For Wyoming Congresswoman Liz Cheney, the answer to that question is simple. The 2020 presidential election was not stolen, Cheney tweeted Monday. Anyone who claims it was is spreading the big lie, turning their back on the rule of law and poisoning our democratic system. The tweet from the number three Republican in the House came shortly after Trump himself doubled down on his claims about the election results, issuing a statement where he attempted to flip the definition of the big lie. Cheney's vocal criticism of the former president and his willingness to continue to peddle a false narrative about the election results has put many Republican leaders in a bind. They are caught between not wanting to fully embrace Trump's lie, but very much unwilling to break from the man who still enjoys strong support with the party's base. Aren't you embarrassed? Senator Mitt Romney of Utah, once the party's nominee for president, booed at a state convention in part because of his vote to convict Trump during the last impeachment trial. You might call me an old-fashioned Republican. I am. Been our party... Oh yeah, you can, you can boo all you like, but I've been a Republican all my life. As a result, many Republicans, like House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, dance around the topic, leaning into the big lie by claiming there were irregularities in November while praising Trump and his presidency. If you want to unite this nation, 
You've got to start with having integrity in your elections. There are questions out here. McCarthy is worried Cheney's public opposition to Trump is hurting his party's chances to regain control of the House. While he originally defended her, he is now refusing to. Is Cheney still a good fit for your leadership team, do you believe? That's a question for the conference. And now some House Republicans are pushing once again for another vote challenging Cheney's leadership. A showdown that could rip open the party divide in a big way. And of course, part of the issue here is that Donald Trump won't let this go. He actually just released a statement applauding those who booed Mitt Romney at the Utah State Convention over the weekend, describing Romney as a stone-cold loser, only because Romney, just like Liz Cheney, will not buy into this big lie that Trump continues to peddle that he actually won the election in the fall. Jake. It's just incredible. Ryan, stick around. I want to bring in Dana Bash, and I want to talk about this. Um, Dana, let me start with you. Republican Congressman Uh, Lance Gooden of Texas tweeted, quote, Liz Cheney has promised she will campaign on impeaching Trump every day of the week. Good luck with that, Liz. Prediction she'll be out of her GOP leadership role Mm. by months. And um, so House Republican Leader McCarthy is reportedly furious at Cheney. Uh, He could call a vote to oust her from her leadership role uh, if he wants to. What do you think he's going to do? I think that's entirely possible. I would even leave into the, lean into the word probable, Jake, at this point. The, con- the House is not in now. They won't be in uh, for a couple of weeks. And so we're going to see uh, what happens when they do come back. That's a lifetime in politics, as we know. Uh, but what you just heard Ryan um, report in his piece about what the leader McCarthy is saying, that she's a distraction uh, privately uh, and that he's hearing she's a distraction and that her role, her job as conference chair is supposed to be to lead the Republicans in the House in a message that she is stepping on that. Um, that is what I'm hearing from people, even some people who really support Liz Cheney because they're worried that it will cause primary fights and that could could hurt their chances for winning the majority. On the flip side, you just saw Liz Cheney. She is stealing herself for a fight. She's relishing this because people I talk to who know her say that this is something that she really sees not about uh, her position in the conference, not even necessarily about the Republican Party, but really fundamentally about the future of democracy because it's about truth and lies. That's right. I mean, Ryan, this couldn't be more stark. This isn't about I mean, Liz Cheney has, uh, you know, wants to keep troops in Afghanistan and and Mm -hmm. Scalise and McCarthy don't. This is Liz Cheney is telling the truth about the election. She's telling the truth about the insurrection. I mean, you can disagree with her impeachment vote or not. But like this is about she's just stating facts. This, This is like McCarthy and Scalise, you know, claiming that the moon landing is faked. I mean, is is that the message for the Republican Party? Tell the truth. And we and you have no position in leadership. Well, that that certainly appears to be the direction that they're going in, Jake. And I think what is most troubling for the future of the Republican Party is that Kevin McCarthy, in particular, uh, initially backed Liz Cheney, uh, you know, and and applauded her principle, uh, said that there uh, were was room within the party for voices in all different perspectives. Then they took a step back. They looked at polling. uh, They looked at the reaction that the former president, Donald Trump, had to all of this. And then they got worried that, uh, you know, the a big majority of the Republican base, uh, you know, some polls say as much as 70 percent of Republican voters believe the big lie. 
and instead of challenging those voters and telling them the truth, being honest with their voters, they've decided just to throw their hands up in the air and say, you know, we're just going to side with Trump because that's our best chance at a narrow path back to the House majority. And that's clearly what's at stake here. You know, Cheney is telling the truth, as you mentioned before. McCarthy dances around that truth. He tries to have it both ways because he doesn't want to alienate Trump voters. But it's the Republicans that have found themselves in this difficult position because mm -hmm. Trump continues to be the leader of the party. He is the one peddling this myth. And it is his supporters that make up the lion's share of the votership of the Republican Party. And so they have nowhere else to go. And Dana, I mean, it's gotten so insane in the House Republican caucus that Congresswoman Cheney, who is arguably more conservative than Scalise and McCarthy put together, uh, she is getting heat for just being civil to President Biden That's right. during uh, during his speech the other night. She, you know, she said hi to him and gave him a fist bump, mm -hmm. not a. I mean, that's just how people, you know, you say hi to people. And she felt the need to issue a statement, quote, I disagree strongly with Joe Biden's policies, but when the president reaches out to greet me in the chamber of the U.S. House of Representatives, I will always respond in a civil, respectful, and dignified way. We're different political parties. We're not sworn enemies. We're Americans. Mm -hmm. Again, this is not, this shouldn't be controversial. It's, I mean, it, this is just basic human civility. That's exactly right. And she has respect for the office of the presidency, which we used to see and hear all the time from people on the opposite side of the aisle of those who were in the White House. But it's not the case anymore. It's just not because things have gotten so ugly. And one thing I, I want to point out and Maybe it appears obvious, but it's important to underscore is that what is is noteworthy about Liz Cheney and what she is doing differently than literally every other Republican leader, uh, those who are currently serving for sure, and even some who have left office, is she's not afraid to speak out. It's not as if she said at the beginning of this and uh, after January 6th, you know, I think that this was uh, wrong and it's the president's fault. It's not as if she even went to the point where voted, she voted for impeachment. She takes every opportunity given to her to speak out because she believes it is the right thing to do, because she believes it is a, an existential threat, again, not just to the GOP, but to the notion of democracy. And so she's not backing down from it, uh, whereas so many of her colleagues, pretty much all of her other colleagues, except for a few rank and file, are just trying to stay quiet. That's what her colleagues in the Republican leadership want her to do, and she refuses. And, and Ryan, we need to be clear about what's going on here. Scalise and McCarthy constantly are demonstrating fealty to former President Trump. Mm -hmm. uh, whatever they can do to get in his good graces, even though he's no longer in power, and that's one of the reasons why they're doing this. And I understand that the former president uh, just attacked Cheney again. Yeah, that's right, Jake. You know, he obviously doesn't have access to any social media feeds anymore, but he sends press releases out uh, on a pretty regular basis, which look an awful lot like his social media feeds used to. And he just put out another statement uh, where he, he calls Liz Cheney a warmonger, claims that he's seen polls uh, that show that she is in big trouble if a, a Republican were to primary her in Wyoming, which there are a number, plan uh, number of people planning to do so, uh, and even suggesting that she's not going to even be in office for very longer, uh, basically because she's been willing to 
challenge uh, the former president. And, and Jake, you know, we have to be honest about this situation. Uh, when it comes to Liz Cheney's future and the risk that she has taken, the former president might not be wrong. Uh, and that is because mm -hmm. most Republicans seem to be siding with him yep. when it comes to this. And, and I think the bigger question for the Republican Party is, yes, you can continue to win races in these very Republican districts. The bigger question is, can you win statewide? Can you win the presidency ever again if you're going to continue to lean into these falsehoods? And Liz Cheney knows that. I mean, she's not doing this with her eyes closed. She understands no. the, the, the tremendous professional risk to her uh, at that point. Uh, it's pretty, uh, pretty remarkable. You so seldom see politicians doing things that could end their careers mm -hmm. just because they think it's right. Dana Bash, Ryan Nobles, thank you so much. Some migrant families separated under President Trump are being reunited after years apart. President Biden's Homeland Security Secretary will join me live next. People gasping for air, others laying in dirty sheets as they die. We're going to go inside a hospital in India where the COVID crisis is spiraling out of control. Stay with us. In our politics lead today, a source tells CNN that the Biden administration will raise the refugee ceiling to 62,500. This was a campaign promise of President Biden and Secretary of State Antony Blinken proposed these numbers to Congress back in February. The Biden administration later switched gears when Biden decided to keep the historically low Trump era cap in place instead. But now it appears those numbers are back on the table after receiving swift criticism from Democrats and refugee allies. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas joins us now. Mr. Secretary, thanks for joining us. Why was there so much back and forth about this refugee camp? Was the hesitancy just about politics? Jake, thank you very much for having me today. Uh, the president has been uh, committed to the refugee program and to rebuilding it and regaining our status as a world leader uh, in the refugee uh, affairs uh, since day one. And that has been unwavering. Uh, we're very proud of uh, the, the announcement today, and it reflects that an enduring commitment. Let's uh, talk about the re reunifications that you talked about earlier today. Four children are about to be reunited with their families after they were separated at the border under the previous administration's zero-tolerance zero policy. Now, you've said hundreds more still need to be reunited. How many more still need to be reunited, and why is it taking so long? Uh, Jake, this is um, very difficult work. It's work that we are intensely proud to be a part of, along with the community-based organizations in an all-of-government and public-private partnership. Uh, these four families that will be reunited tomorrow in the United States is just the beginning. We do indeed have hundreds and hundreds of family files to review to make sure that the individuals indeed have been separated. We know where they are. Uh, we can verify their identity and their qualifications to receive humanitarian parole, a benefit that we extend to them uh, as part of the healing and reunification process. We're intensely proud. It's hard work, but it's noble work. Is there anything you could tell us about the, the psychological status of these kids? I mean, separated from their parents in 2017, 2018. I, I can't even imagine what they've gone through. Uh, is the United States government going to do anything extra to try to make them whole? Jake, your question goes to the very heart of this matter. Uh, the cruelty of the prior administration 
and our obligation uh, to achieve uh, the healing that these families need and deserve. These are sons, daughters, brothers, sisters, mothers, and fathers. Uh, the two of the four families uh, that we are reuniting tomorrow um, were separated in late 2017. Uh, the trauma uh, that these families have suffered uh, is incalculable. And yes, indeed, um, not only are these four families just the beginning, but what we are extending to them in terms of humanitarian relief and bringing them into this country is also only the beginning. We need to provide them with the stability and the resources that they require uh, to uh, restore uh, themselves uh, as they once were. That's mm -hmm. our obligation, our commitment, and our privilege. Let's talk about the situation on the border right now, because in March, the Border Patrol apprehended more than 18,000 unaccompanied minors, a, a record since at least October 2009. Thousands of children were left in these jail-like Border Patrol facilities and often longer than the 72-hour limit set by federal law. Now, to be honest, a lot of experts saw this coming months before March. Why wasn't the administration better prepared? Uh, Jake, let me, let me say a couple things, if I may. Number one, please remember that we inherited a system that was dismantled in its entirety, and we had to uh, really rebuild it, number one. Number two, the Biden administration, under the president and the vice president's leadership, made a decision that we will not continue to expel unaccompanied children. And so we had to start a humanitarian process while we rebuilt the system in its entirety. One month ago, on March 28th, we had over 5,700 unaccompanied children in the custody of the Border Patrol. And as I said then, and I say now, a Border Patrol station is no place for a child. The average time in custody that an unaccompanied child experienced on March 28th was an average of 133 days. Mm -hmm. Today, around 30, 30 days later, um, the average time is less than 30 hours, and we have, and we have less than 600 unaccompanied children in Border Patrol um, custody. What I said then stays true. We have a plan. We're executing on the plan. We know how to do this, and it takes time. Here we are on May 3rd uh, in a dramatically different um, situation. All right, Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, thank you so much. Please come back. We have lots of questions, and uh, Homeland Security, obviously, an issue we really care about on this show. I look forward to doing so. Thank you, Jake. Thank you. Conditions at a COVID-19 hospital in India are so bad that people who can barely breathe are begging to leave. CNN is on the ground in India as a desperate situation gets even worse. And our world lead today, right now, India is experiencing the world's worst coronavirus outbreak. Today is the fifth day with more than 3,000 reported deaths in that country, a country where only 2% of the population is fully vaccinated. And behind those numbers are experiences and stories of suffering and desperation and the complete mismanagement of this crisis. Even as help pours into India from the U.S. and other countries, India is struggling to give basic medical care to those who need it. 
CNN's chief international correspondent, Clarissa Ward, is live for us in New Delhi. She went to India's most populous state, Uttar Pradesh, to see the crisis firsthand. And Clarissa, we should warn our viewers that what you're about to share with us is really upsetting at times. Tell us what you saw. It really is, Jake. We visited a government-run hospital in Uttar Pradesh, uh, some 200 million people living in that state. It's one of the hardest-hit states, and uh, the scenes we saw were absolutely harrowing, and they are hard to watch. I do want to warn our viewers, but the families that we spoke to, they want the world to see the tragedy and the heartbreak they're experiencing. <laughs> A man wails in anguish, but no one is listening. His cry, just one of many, at this hospital in Uttar Pradesh state. Oh, my child, he says. Oh, my God, my baby. Inside the entrance, his son Deepak is fighting for his life. Gasping for air, his body convulsing. There are no doctors attending to him. The handful of medical staff working in this ward are stretched thin to breaking point. This hospital is completely overwhelmed. The doctors say that they have about 55 beds and currently they're treating more than 100 patients. And you can see people are literally just lying on the floor, desperately hoping to get some medical attention. 32-year-old Kavita says she's been here for four days, begging for oxygen that has not come. I'm getting anxious, she says. No one is listening to me here. Are you struggling to breathe? I'm unable to breathe freely, she tells us. No one is taking care of me. In the next room, more than 20 patients are packed in tightly. This is what now passes for the intensive care unit. Family members have taken on the role of primary carers, where medical staff are simply unavailable. This man complains no one will change his wife's soiled bedding. Suddenly, there is a commotion. Will someone please call the doctor, this man shouts. His mother, 55-year-old Rajbala, appears to be slipping away. Her sons work furiously to revive her. A doctor comes in and tells them to stop crowding her. But the family is inconsolable. We've been here for six days and only today we got the ventilator for my mother, he tells us. The oxygen is out. We had to bring an oxygen cylinder. It's a story we hear again and again. One man approaches us pleading. His wife can't get a bed. No one's listening to me. I've tried everything, he says. Please help me or she will die. I'm not a doctor. I'm so sorry. I can't help you. Another man tells us his wife is struggling to breathe outside. They won't let her in. We spot the hospital administrator and ask him what's going on. 
Yeah. This man says his wife is dying outside and needs oxygen. No, oxygen is a central line oxygen. Hai. He insists that oxygen isn't the problem, but says they are desperately short of staff. Those who do work here risk becoming patients themselves. These men tell us they move a dozen bodies a day. Have you ever seen anything like this before? Are you not worried to be working here? You're not wearing we should be wearing proper PPE, they say, but even the doctors don't have it, so how can we? We hear screams coming from the ICU. Rajbala has flatlined again. Her son desperately pumps her chest. A doctor comes in. He takes her pulse, but it's too late. This time, there is no point in trying to resuscitate her. The agony of her sons is shared by so many in this country. Failed by a healthcare system on the brink of collapse, and a government accused of mismanaging this crisis. Just a few hundred yards away, in the same hospital complex, it's a very different picture. Orderly lines of people patiently wait to be vaccinated. Following the Prime Minister's announcement that anyone over 18 can be inoculated. A state lawmaker is among 600 people getting their vaccine. The hospital administrator and local journalists eagerly stand by to capture the moment. We were just in the hospital over there. Yeah. It was shocking to see Why? the... It was shocking. Why? Because the conditions are so bad here. Why do you think India has been hit so badly? When we are trying... The hospital administrator interrupts and warns him that we have been asking too many questions. Sir, you don't need to coach him what to say. He's telling him what to say. We are trying to best and some problems were there, but we are trying. Now condition is better. Do you accept that the government has failed its people no, 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 in the no, handling no, of this no, no, crisis? No, never. Because I've been talking to a lot of people, and I have to tell you, people are angry. People feel that this didn't need to be so ugly. The situation is not only bad here, we're trying to find solutions, he says. We're increasing the number of beds, and we're working tirelessly around the clock. But back in the COVID ward, the impact of those efforts is not yet being felt. Rajbala's body is left for nearly an hour before it is finally moved. India's leaders may promise that everything is being done to end this crisis, but for now, there is no light at the end of the tunnel. 
And you see it there, Jake. I mean, shortages of everything, shortages of beds, shortages of drugs, shortages of oxygen. But perhaps the most pronounced shortage that we saw on the ground was a shortage of medical personnel. Five doctors and nurses were responsible for looking after all those more than 100 people in that COVID ward. And today the Indian government has come out and said that they are actually going to draft in uh, final year medical students to try to backfill uh, some of the void and help tackle this crisis. But listen, it's going to be an uphill battle, Jake. And the peak hasn't even hit yet of this vicious second wave. And Clarissa, the lawmaker with whom you were speaking, he said that they're working around the clock to help. How do the Indian people feel in terms of their experience? Do they think their government is, is doing enough? Do they think the government's being supportive? Well, it obviously depends who you speak to, but the places we've been going to and the people we've been talking with and the stories we've been hearing, people are very angry. People are deeply distressed. There's a real sense that this crisis didn't need to be quite as pronounced, quite as awful as it is, that other measures could have been taken, that other preparations could have been made, and that essentially there's been some real negligence uh, from the government here. We're seeing a lot more people come out and be vocally critic of Prime Minister Modi and his party, the BJP. Who knows what that means for his political future, Jake? He is still uh, a very powerful political figure and largely popular, but certainly uh, many people here really feeling very angry about the mismanagement of this crisis. And, and we've seen, Clarissa, some people in India taking to social media to ask for medical supplies. Oftentimes it's their, their only hope for help, sometimes for information. But the Indian government just started pressuring social media companies to take down posts like that. Why? Well, they're not just pressuring the social media companies. They're actually threatening the people who are taking to Twitter uh, and other online sources to put out their cries for help. They're saying uh, that they're spreading malicious and false information about COVID and that they're causing panic. Uh, but many people on the ground feel like it's a very thinly veiled attempt uh, to silence the government's critics. And we actually talked to one analyst today who said, listen, the only thing this government should be focused on right now is dealing with this problem. Any minute spent engaged in this kind of activity, worrying about what people are tweeting about trying to get oxygen so that their loved ones can breathe, uh, is frankly, in their words, a disgrace. Prime, Minister's Modi, uh, Prime Minister Modi's party uh, just got crushed in state elections. Uh, what does that say about his political future? Well, I think it's it's difficult because you can't really see these elections as a referendum on his handling of COVID. And so time will only tell uh, whether this is a bellwether for things to come, whether there will be a broader backlash against the government's handling of COVID. But the question that a lot of people here had, Jake, was why were these elections held in the first place? Why were there huge rallies with thousands of people not wearing masks, with Modi himself praising them for these huge turnouts, when on the same day, 261,000 new cases of COVID were recorded. A lot of people saying that looks like negligence. Yeah, it also sounds very familiar. Clarissa Ward in India, thank you so much for that disturbing but important report. Coming up, a suspected human smuggling boat packed with migrants torn to pieces. Why authorities in the area were sadly fearing a deadly accident like this would inevitably happen. Then, 
The family laying to rest Andrew Brown Jr., but closure must feel miles away as police continue to sit on the full body cam footage. Stay with us. In our nationally today, family members of Andrew Brown Jr. saying their final goodbyes at his funeral today and demanding accountability and more access to body camera videos to see exactly how their loved one's final moments unfolded. The 42-year-old father and grandfather was killed by North Carolina sheriff's deputies nearly two weeks ago. Authorities have released very few details, but district attorneys argue that Brown hit deputies with his car before the fatal shooting. Brown's family says... He was driving away trying to save his own life. CNN's Brian Todd is live outside the funeral site in Elizabeth City, North Carolina, not far from the North Carolina-Virginia border. Brian, we also just heard from Andrew Brown Jr.'s two sons. What did they have to say? Well, Jake, you could tell how physically and emotionally difficult it was for his two sons, uh, Jaleel, uh, uh, Gerard and Khalil Farabee, to get up in front of the audience to talk about the loss of their father. They said, essentially, they're still trying to process this. They still cannot believe uh, that he was taken from them and the way that he was taken from them. Here is what uh, Andrew Brown's eldest son, Khalil Farabee, had to say about that. I just want to say everybody keep their heads up, you know, and keep God, you know, in your prayers because he's going to work all this out for us. It's a terrible way we had to meet together like this. But, you know, seeing everybody, I'm glad we're together like this right now. He would have loved this. And Khalil Farabee also said he keeps wishing and wishing and wishing that his father could see uh, some of the emotion and the passion that's played out, not only here at the church, but in the streets in protest uh, after his death. But, of course, he, he can't make that happen for his father. It was a very emotional moment for Khalil Farabee. We can also tell you this afternoon, Jake, that um, we have learned from... Uh, one of the Brown family attorneys, Bakari Sellers, that the, the family, through its attorneys, are now uh, about to call for the recusal of Andrew Womble, the local district attorney, from this case. Bakari Sellers telling us that they're drafting a letter at this moment calling for that recusal. They believe it's because he has worked extensively with the sheriff's department in many cases in the past, and they believe that in the interest of fairness, he should recuse himself. We've reached out to Andrew Womble's office, and we've not heard back yet for comment. All right, Brian, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Dramatic pictures of a disaster at sea as a suspected human smuggling boat capsizes off the coast of San Diego. That, the latest on what went so horribly wrong. That's next. Also in our national lead today, dramatic images of a boat suspected of having been used to smuggle migrants into the U.S. as it capsized off the San Diego coast yesterday, killing at least three people. The Coast Guard says the boat was severely overcrowded. At least 29 people were packed on board. You can see some desperately trying to hang on as waves tore the boat to pieces. The captain is now in custody. I want to bring in CNN Stephanie Elam. Uh, Stephanie, just days earlier, the Coast Guard put out a warning, fearing as though something like this might happen. It's really crazy and remarkable, the timing of this, when you, you look at how this all played out, Jake. And what we now know is the U.S. Coast Guard said that they have given us a new update on what they were doing. We know that they were continuing to search overnight. They now said that they have suspended searching for people, and they now say that 32 people are accounted for. 29 of those people are alive. Five people went to the hospital. There's one person of that five who remains in critical condition, and three people who have lost their lives. They're saying that when this happened, that water is just very choppy, that the uh, 40 
50-foot vessel hit a reef and then after hitting it capsized and broke apart. Some of those people were able to make it to the shore themselves. Others of them were rescued out of the water, which they said uh, was 60 degrees or so. So the first thing that they saw of some of these people was hypothermia, but they also saw other physical injuries because of what happened here, Jake. And Stephanie, uh, officials with San Diego Fire and Rescue told you that they see these types of smuggling boats weekly. Is there any way to crack down on what's happening in wide open waters like this? Yeah, and it's also noteworthy that you had mentioned that the Coast Guard was saying that law enforcement would be out and would start patrolling the waters more so. And that alert came out on Friday. And then this happened on Sunday morning. They say that they've seen a 92 percent increase of apprehensions uh, in fiscal year 20 versus fiscal year 2019. They're seeing more of this, of people trying to just blend in to normal traffic out there on the seas of uh, commerce and then bringing these people in. And so because of that, they were just saying that they were going to crack down because it's so dangerous. And obviously, as you can see it, lives were lost in this case. All right, Stephanie Elam, thank you so much. Appreciate it. And our tech lead now, just moments ago, one of the most well-known couples in the world announced that they were splitting up. In a statement on Twitter, Bill Gates announced that he and his wife Melinda are going their separate ways after 27 years of marriage. The Microsoft co-founder and his philanthropist wife helped start an initiative called The Giving Pledge, which encourages billionaires to give most of their wealth to charity. Most recently, They pledged up to $100 million to help fight the coronavirus pandemic, including donations to the Centers for Disease Control and the World Health Organization. Liz Cheney may have taken a sledgehammer to the thin ice she's on with her own party with a tweet this morning saying, the big lie is exactly what it sounds like. Stay with us.